Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Just before you listen to today's episode, this is a quick message to remind you that if you like what you hear, you can help support History Hack, which is run entirely by volunteers using our Patreon account. There are links on all of our episodes. Or if a subscription is not your thing, you can also now drop us a line on Kofi, which is just the equivalent of buying us a drink. So if you hear an episode, you like it and you want to chip in just once, then you can do that too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I've got Zach with me today. How are you doing, babyface? I'm, yeah, I'm I'm good, mate. This is this is going to be a good one. This is see, I kind of feel like I shouldn't say this is cool because if I rank something as cool, that should probably instantly mean that it isn't regarded as cool. But you are the world. This is cool. Nerd, you mean? Well, well, yes, basically. Well, no, I think this is this is cool stuff. This is the kind of history that I like reading when I want to switch my brain off of all the geopolitical stuff and the World War One misery. So who have we got with us? So today we are joined by Ian Keeble, a professional magician and member of the Magic Circle. He's a lecturer for the Art Society and is author of Stand Up, A Professional Guide to Comedy Magic and Charles Dickens' Magician, Conjuring in Life, Letters and Literature. But today... We're going to be talking about his latest book. I've just read this. It is absolutely brilliant. You're going to love it. It's called The Century of Deception, The Birth of the Hoax in 18th Century England. Ian, great to see you. What folks won't realise, because we edited out the first version, is that's my second attempt at an introduction. <laughs> Got it right this time. You How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Delighted to see you. I think there's an important distinction that we probably want to clear up right at the start. You focus on hoaxes in your book. So explain for our listeners how that is distinct from cons, because they're two separate things, aren't they? Yes, they are under my definition, I think. I do distinguish between a hoax and a sort of con or a scam. I think a hoax tends to be, in theory, more benign anyway. But as I, having looked at several hoaxes that occurred in the 18th century, they are, in fact, far from benign, but we can touch on that later. But I think there is one crucial distinction is that very rarely is a hoax done for financial reasons. It's not in order to obtain money deceitfully from somebody. Uh, of the 10 hoaxes I look at in my book, in fact, only one of them uh, is motivated by financial inducements. And ironically, it, it's one of the few that fails to realise any money from it. Uh, but yes, I, I think that is a distinction. Um, 
cons or scams we're, we're all familiar with those from our nigerian prince who writes to us or uh, that <laughs> n- nice man from the bt ringing up and saying there's a problem with your internet uh, those are all financial scams or cons i wouldn't call those hoaxes so i i do make i think that important distinction so you're telling me that those emails that i get that i'm, I'm not special then you get them as well <laughs> yes. <afraid> so, yes. <laughs> ah, damn it One of the things you also make clear at the start of your book is that you had a massive volume of available information to pick from. So talk us a bit through your research process and how, because you were very particular about only wanting to focus on this century, weren't you? Why is that? Yes, I was. I, when I was sort of looking at uh, other books about hoaxes, of which there were many out there, they tended to stretch over a huge period and covered all countries, you know, from the beginning of the 18th century right through to the 21st century. I wanted to focus in much more detail because I do think if you do focus on individual hoaxes and really get into them, you find out much more about them. You know, you find out about more about maybe the motivation of the uh, the person who's perpetrating the hoax at all so why it works and if you just have a you know a very sort of a couple of paragraphs about an individual hoax you really can't get into that so I did want to focus on um, a, a much smaller number of hoaxes um, I chose the 18th century because it's a period I've always been interested in and I also felt that it's really only from 1700 onwards that we have enough sufficient information about individual hoaxes to write about them because prior to that although obviously hoaxes did occur there might be a single documentation a single pamphlet a single newspaper article about that hoax but from 1700 onwards we'd had not only newspapers and journals but pamphlets satirical prints the 18th century equivalent to today's cartoon court transcripts and even theatrical reproductions of these hoaxes on stage so we had all this sort of massive amount of information so that's why I call it the birth of the hoax in the 18th century why only 100 years well I think you know we tend to work in 100 years anyway when it comes to um, looking at uh, looking at anything but it so happens that also in the 18th century I think the hoaxes are particularly entertaining um, because not because of people's stupidity or gullibility, as I argue in my book, but maybe because they are slightly more naive and lack of knowledge. Uh, by definition, the hoaxes are more amusing. Uh, nobody is probably after 1800 is going to believe that a woman could possibly give birth to rabbits. Uh, but that is something that people believed in the 18th century. And similarly, you know, that a man's going to climb inside a bottle on the stage of a theatre. Again, unlikely, perhaps, that people would have fallen for that, you know, 100 years later. So I think it's that sort of combination of, by chance, the hoaxes in the 18th century are particularly fun and entertaining. Uh, and also, it just seemed a, a very sort of neat time period to look at. I mean, you say people wouldn't be taken in by things like that. But I've been in certain parts of Southampton where, frankly, <laughs> I reckon they probably would believe in the whole giving birth to rabbits story. And what you say there brings us on quite nicely to kind of where I want to take this for the next bit and look at some of the examples because some of the people you cover and their lives just sound frankly mental. So let's start with the guy who pretended to come from a far eastern island, despite obviously looking European rather than Asian. So tell us, about, and I'm going to ruin the pronunciation here, so apologies in advance. Tell us about George Salmanazar. 
yes, I pronounce him George Sarmanazar, but I'm not sure if that's correct either. So <laughs> we can go with our pronunciation uh, on that one. Yes, George Sarmanazar was um, actually French, uh, born in the sort of uh, the late 17th century. And um, he came from uh, quite a poor family, but he was very, very well uh, educated. He could speak sort of fluent Latin and, and Greek uh, in his sort of early teens. And from a very early age, he started sort of creating a, a sort of an external persona. To begin with, he wanted to earn some money by making a trip from his uh, back from a job which he had back to his hometown. So he uh, pretended that he was a Irish pilgrim setting forth on Rome and begging alms on his way. Uh, and because he spoke fluent Latin, he managed to get away with that subterfuge. Um, later, when he sort of started out trying to uh, survive on his own, he joined the Dutch army. And even before that, he pretended that actually he came from Japan and he started sort of making up a Japanese language and behaving like he felt Japanese people would behave. Quite why he did that, we don't really know, but he was clearly somebody who enjoyed playing this sort of rather fantasy figure and perhaps enjoyed the attention which he got from people from pretending to be this. Uh, but where it sort of really developed into a, a full-scale hoax was when he met up with a man who was a clergyman uh, from a Scottish regiment who recognised in George Sarmanazar a talent whereby they could perhaps make money. And together they concocted this plan whereby uh, the Reverend Alexander Innes would pretend that he converted George Sarmanazar from uh, the heathen religion to the Anglican faith. But they felt that still pretending to be Japanese was a bit dangerous because there might be a few people who knew about Japan. So they opted on Taiwan, although back in the 18th century was known as Formosa. And from then on, uh, George became this Formosan individual and he came over to England. He was accepted by the Bishop of London and uh, that sort of started his uh, career and his whole life as a uh, as a Formosan person. But to answer your your specific question, how did he get away with it, given that indeed he was a white man with blonde hair? I think there were quite a number of reasons. The first of all, actually, was the fact that he was accepted by the Bishop of London. The Bishop of London absolutely believed that George was Formosan and that he had been truly converted. And if you have a figure of authority, uh, that sort of gets other people to uh, to agree uh, with you know your 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 idea or your hopes. Um, so that that was number one in his favour. Two, he was also, by all accounts, a very nice young man. He didn't seem to have any particular thoughts. He wasn't a womanizer. He wasn't a drinker. He wasn't trying to exploit his fame for money particularly. And I think people invested in him as a, a young man who was perfect, a perfect vehicle uh, for somebody who'd been converted to the, to the Anglican faith. Uh, also, he was a very good liar. And by that, I mean, he had a very good memory, which meant that he, whatever he said, however ridiculous, uh, about Formosa, he would never change his mind. And it was always quite hard to argue with somebody if they if they always keep the same point and never change their mind. So that was another point. In the individual points about the fact that he was a white man with blonde hair, well, his response to that, because he was always a very good arguer and debater, was that he actually came from a very wealthy family in Formosa. They didn't let him outdoors much, and therefore he wasn't <laughs> exposed to the sun. And, of course, this uh, kicked in with the... Uh, with the theory back then that uh, the colour of your skin was dependent on how much you'd been exposed to the sun.
And we're not talking about idiots, are we? Was Samuel Johnson not a mate of his? Like, he's not just talking <laughs> to gullible, um, like, peasants, is he? he? He's actually got everyone going with this. Well, to be fair, Samuel Johnson, he was friendly with Samuel Johnson, and Samuel Johnson and later uh, said that actually George Simanazar was the man he most admired. But I don't think it was for his lies over Formosa. He admired him because of his work ethic, because eventually George had to find another way of earning a living. He could only go so far, you know, by pretending he was from Formosa and exploiting that for money. So he actually became quite a good sort of hack writer, writing books anonymously. And that's the point where he met up with Samuel Johnson. But um, Samuel Johnson was quite amusing because uh, he was asked, you know, do you ever talk to George about uh, Formosa? He said, I don't even talk to him about China. So it was a subject which uh, uh, Samuel Johnson avoided, I think. So I've, I think they bonded over the, over the sort of work ethic and sort of Christian ethics that George Simonazar had. Uh, I'm sure Samuel Johnson didn't believe that, uh, that George generally came from Formosa by the stage he met up with him. But you are right that people, <laughs> a lot of people uh, did fall for it. But you also remember, I mean, people didn't know about Formosa. And even when somebody came over from Formosa and said, look, it's nothing like uh, George is describing. George has said, well, you live on the perimeter of the island. I lived in, a, in an enclave in the centre of the island. And, you know, you haven't, we had completely different customs from those people on the outside. So he always had an, uh, an answer to any argument. He's uh, a consummate that, bullshit artist, isn't he? Absolutely. Like yeah, yeah. So you've really got to admire him for that, I think. Absolutely. That's impressive. That's, uh, these are skills that we should kind of use down the pub, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like um, they would take us far. Absolutely. Yeah, just remember, but if you're going to lie, lie consistently. Don't be caught out. Uh, so having a good memory uh, is it was part of his yeah, part of his way of getting away with it. There you go. Not only are we giving you like historical expertise, we're also giving you expertise on how to hoodwink people and um, lie to them effectively. So there you go. History hack, providing all the answers to your life's needs. Or to become a sociopath, you mean, as well. As, <laughs> <laughs> story. Well, I mean, I was yeah. going to put that to one side. But yeah. Just surely. I mean, like, yes, he got so he made money out of it for a certain amount of time. Um, and then had to change because people were like, yeah, so what? You're from Formosa. But surely there were quicker, easier job opportunities. Why did he do it? Why live a lie? Well, I don't think there was for George. I mean, remember where he came from. You know, he came from a low peasantry family in France. And to make your way in the world would have been extremely hard. I mean, he arrives in England and the only thing he's got going for him is the fact that he's from Formosa. Um, and he's obviously exploited by this clergyman, the Reverend Alexander Innes, who I suspect made a lot more money than George ever did. Mm. And it was Innes who actually persuaded George to write the book, you know, which was published in 1704, which was an historical and geographical description of Formosa, which goes into wonderful detail. I mean, absolutely, completely made up, uh, not a grain of truth in the whole thing. So and he's paid, you know, uh, not that much money for it. And he, he has a, a second edition, which he also writes again, where he's paid not much money for it. But uh, so that's basically how he's sort of earning his, his living. And also because people who were sympathetic to his cause, i.e. the sort of friends of the Bishop of London, used to sort of put him up and give him sort of charitable donations. But, uh, you know, how else could he earn his living? Uh, eventually, he, he segued in, into writing, as I say, because that was obviously what he was skilled at. But, uh, yeah, to say there's easier ways of making a living, I'm not sure if there necessarily was. Uh, and what happened if he confessed at that point? You know, he would have been disgraced and 
probably could never face society again. So it, there was nothing advantageous in <laughs> telling anybody that he was uh, uh, not from Formosa. He confessed, of course, at the end when in his biography, autobiography, which was published posthumously, uh, which he insisted on, yeah, it wasn't published until after his death. I mean, that is the problem for these people. And, and we'll kind of touch on this as we go. But once you've started this, and particularly once you've become famous for this, you've you've got to keep it going. Because if you turn around and say, actually, you know what, I lied. You know, honour's a big thing in 18th century and 19th century society. And if you basically said, by admitting this, you know, I've got no honour, I've li- literally lived a lie, then your name's going to be mud, isn't it? I think probably, yes. I mean, it's very hard to, to ascertain what would have happened if he had confessed earlier. But uh, yeah, I, I just don't, I can't see any upside of him confessing, to be honest. Uh, I think that's, um, yeah, I'm sure it was a judgment he made at the time anyway. Let's move it on to another, perhaps less wacky one, but certainly an, an odd one. Um, you talk at one point about a ghost communicating through knocking noises. So tell us about the story that surrounds William Kent. Yes, a couple of uh, lovely innuendos in this uh, in this particular story is it all happened in Cock Lane and uh, <laughs> the ghost was known as Scratching Fanny or Rapping Fanny. So <laughs> I'll leave you to make your own jokes on that. But, oh, uh, that's a history hack joke before it either happened, <laughs> isn't it? But yes, it's a strange, convoluted story. It's essentially a man called William Kent, and he had his his partner. They were never married for various reasons. A partner called Fanny, and they were staying in Cock Lane for a period of time with a man called Richard Parsons, who had a young daughter called Betty Parsons. And even while they were there, sort of knockings and rappings were heard in the house. But um, they left uh, because Fanny became pregnant. But sadly, she died during uh, the pregnancy. She caught smallpox and and died before she had the child. And sort of William Kent moved on. But um, about a year later, uh, these sort of rappings started up again in Richard Parsons' house. And... uh, it turned out that they only occurred in the presence of young Betty Parsons, who I think was about 12 or 13 years old, when essentially she was lying in bed. Um, And Richard Parsons called in a man called John Moore, who was uh, had sort of Methodist tendencies, who did believe at that time in sort of witchcraft and ghosts. And together, they derived a means of communicating with this, uh, this rapping spirit, as it was uh, known with these sort of knocks. And essentially they discovered that uh, the rapping spirit was in fact Fanny, uh, who had her ghost had come back. uh, And by communicating one rap for yes and two raps for no, they were able to have long conversations with her. And during those conversations, she actually accused William Kent, her partner of murdering her by poisoning. So that was the sort of setup of the story. And it became quite a sensation. Uh, people came around in carriages to witness rapping uh, Fanny at work. Um, and of course, uh, Betty was lying in bed at the time. So one could argue that underneath the bedclothes, she could have been uh, sort of banging away in order to uh, <laughs> to produce these noises. Uh, but I, I, 
almost certainly there were accomplices involved, uh, both Richard Parsons and his wife, and also uh, a next door neighbour as well, I think was involved. So even if Betty was unable to make the wrappings, other people in the room could possibly have made the wrappings too. It's quite hard actually to know where noise is coming from. So if you can imagine there's a, a full room of people and somebody's standing at one end sort of knocking, <laughs> knocking the wall, it's unlikely you would detect or be able to work out exactly where the sound came from. So yeah, it was very, very dangerous for William Kent because he was literally accused of, of murdering uh, Fanny. This is the things people did before Netflix. It's incredible. Uh, much, this, much more entertaining. <laughs> this one, I think Zach has just put in the list just to piss Beth off uh, because she loves Shakespeare. He's nodding with a mischievous look on his face. The fake Shakespeare play. What was the deal with William Henry Ireland? Yeah, as, as I sort of mentioned earlier, part of the fascination I had with this book is, is to work out both how the hoaxes were carried out but also the motivation behind the hoax and with William Henry Ireland you can sort of work out how he succeeded in per perpetrating the hoax but it's quite hard to work out his motivation essentially he was finding Shakespearean, doc Shakespearean documentation uh, in a, a wardrobe belonging to a Mr H uh, surprise surprise we never discover who Mr H was because he obviously didn't exist and uh, he was giving them to his father his father was obsessed about Shakespeare and desperate to get hold of any Shakespearean in February so the motivation at first appeared to be to ingratiate himself with his father but why it sort of worked was he's very clever because he didn't just sort of start off by producing a whole new Shakespeare play, which everybody would have scoffed at and not believed. Yeah. He actually began by producing very boring ephemera, it, things like sort of bills of exchange and financial documents and notes relating to uh, Fespian's pay. Um, and obviously people then said, well, why would any bother any of anybody bother to forge such you know such boring stuff it therefore must be genuine um because it was signed by Shakespeare and had sort of Shakespearean references so he gradually built it up and sucked his father in I to, I guess into uh, believing in the early documentation which means that when he did come out with a complete new play which was called Vortigern uh, supposedly by Shakespeare by that time his father was too far in it to you know to question its veracity because once you question one piece of documentation which you receive the whole uh, you know house of cards collapses yeah uh, so it's it was a very sort of cunning way of of sucking his father in and his father also sucked other people in he invited people around to his house to look at this ephemera and he actually got them to sign a book to say yeah this is genuine including famously James Boswell, you know, back to Samuel Johnson again. Um, James Boswell actually said he'd never seen anything so amazing. Um, he was quite ill at the time, so we'll forgive him for his error of ways. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I mean, is this? I'm just trying to get my head around this. So he's passing this stuff to his dad. Is this like you know a way of earning pocket money that just gets out of hand? No, I don't think so, because, I mean, his father was quite mean. He didn't really give him give uh, his son anything at all. Um, his son didn't seem to sort of make any demands on him. Um, eventually, the play was actually staged for one night at the Drury Lane Theatre on the 2nd of April, one day after the 1st of April, on the 2nd of April, uh, 1796. And he was, the father was paid money because he basically had the ownership of the play and he did give some money to his son. But uh, yeah, there's, um, his son didn't actually get any money out of it at the time. Uh, we're just not quite sure. I mean, I think, as I say, the motivation perhaps to begin with was to ingratiate himself with his father. His father thought he was very stupid. And of course, rather tragically, when it was all revealed as a hoax, his father just wouldn't believe it. He just couldn't believe that his son was capable of writing uh, a complete Shakespeare play, which he considered actually to be quite good. So it seems that he went to his deathbed believing that his son had not hoaxed him, if you like, that these papers were in fact genuine. So it was a very sort of odd, uh, odd relationship between the two of them, clearly. And when that play went to theatre and people kind of saw it is that the point at which people went no this isn't Shakespeare (laughs) or or did it kind of perpetuate after that I think that was the culmination of it although there was a book um uh, Samuel Ireland insisted having received all this ephemera which obviously was only available to certain people to look at uh, and many Shakespearean scholars weren't allowed near it uh, but he became you know, so convinced that they were true that he published a lot of this uh, information, which was very dangerous, of course, because now it was out there. And a very distinguished sort of Shakespearean scholar, uh, a, a man called Edmund Malone, wrote a, basically a devastating attack on all the stuff uh, that had been produced by... William Henry. Uh, And at that point, the papers and intellectuals realised that it was almost certainly phony. But uh, I think, uh, but he didn't publish the play. So the first time anybody saw the play was when it was actually staged. But that really, so it all rested on, on basically on the play succeeding. And and Samuel Ireland actually sort of sent a leaflet around to people coming into the theatre saying, you know, don't believe Malone's book, judge for yourself uh, what, whether this is a genuine Shakespeare play or not. But unfortunately, the audience did judge for themselves and did decide that it wasn't up to the mark. And uh, that was the first and last time it was, in fact, staged. I'm really interested in us kind of pausing for a moment and kind of digging into some of this. I mean, we've talked about... William Kent and how he was on trial, sorry, wasn't on trial, but he was accused of murder. And, you know, that 
that's a, a dangerous situation to be in. Um, we've got people kind of producing stuff that they are basically claiming are historical documents, you know, whole Shakespearean plays, this is part of Shakespeare's canon, accept it. And I'm kind of interested in where the line lies between a hoax being just something that's designed to hoodwink people a little bit and where it becomes a bit insidious. Because even within history more generally, and you know, we saw an example of this recently with people claiming that Wellington had um, said something effectively racist and actually it turned out that it was a quote attributed to another person that had originated in a novel. Um, so that was a bit of egg on somebody's face for that. So you get these things where people make genuine mistakes. You get these situations where people put material out there so that it gets accepted. If folks don't know about the whole thing surrounding A.D. Harvey, go and look that up. The guy just basically made up a whole load of random shizzle to do with Dostoevsky and Dickens. So th- I guess where does the line is my question. Where's the line that sometimes gets crossed where this actually becomes quite damaging? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, it's it's hard to know, I think, sometimes when the hoax starts out, but it's going to become uh, that damaging. Uh, I mean, if you look at the sort of William Kent case, uh, the wrappings or knockings that first appeared, I, I suspect were just a sort of a practical joke by perhaps uh, just by Betty Parsons, the young girl, and maybe the father wasn't even aware of it. Uh, but then they had they began to have a little bit more fun with it. They actually spooked out a, a local publican. And at that point, there was no inference that the ghost was, in fact, uh, Fanny, uh, the uh, the dead partner of William Kent. Uh, what happened, though, was that um, Richard Parsons fell out big time with William Kent. Uh, he was a bit of an alcoholic and he borrowed some money from William Kent and William Kent had to sue him to get the money back. And then a friend of the of Fanny's family um, came around and started trying to find a little bit of dirt on William Kent because of uh, relationships with the will, which I won't bother to go into. But um, the point was that Richard, I think, then saw an opportunity maybe to be a little bit more vengeful. Uh, and, and that then crept into, yeah, absolutely horrors of actually accusing uh, William Kent of of. Um, murdering Fanny so absolutely it started off you know as a bit of a prank and and developed into something which was very dangerous potentially for William and I think that's that's true perhaps of a lot of hoaxes um you know you're just not quite sure what's going to happen or what the outcome is going to be I mean my favorite hoax is the bottle conjurer hoax which is on the face of it, extremely benign uh, and great fun because an advertisement was put in the paper when a man would climb inside a bottle on the, on the stage of the new theatre in the Haymarket. Uh, he would climb and sing and dance inside the bottle. It was an ordinary sized bottle, you know, it wasn't a huge bottle. <laughs> and unbelievably, although the audience turned up, which they did in their hundreds, unfortunately, the performer did not. 
So uh, that could have been the end of it. You know, uh, somebody from the theatre company came out on stage and said, you know, basically you've been hoaxed, but don't worry, you're going to get your money back. But unfortunately, at that point, a riot immediately started. The inside of the theatre was smashed. You know, the takings were stolen. Uh, people had items pickpocketed and they took all the paraphernalia from the theatre, the staging, the the curtain, uh, the scenery and burnt it in a huge bonfire outside the theatre. So from what, appeared to be, you know, a bit of a sort of prankish hoax, uh, turned into a sort of full-scale mob riot with uh, considerable damage done to the theatre. So, yeah, often you just you just don't really know uh, what's going to come out of these, these hoaxes. So it's very hard to, yeah, uh, often they do creep into, as you say, something much more insidious than perhaps was first planned. It's I love that, that, because you open with that bottle hoax, at the start of your book, and I, I kid you not, it's probably the most enjoyable introduction to a book that I've read in the last year. Um, so from that point, I was absolutely hooked. Uh, thank you. I'll, Can I correct, correct you on that one? Yeah, cover <laughs> Go quote, for yeah. it. Nobody knows I who I am. Historians <laughs> um, i got to ask you, which one completely blew your mind? What's your favourite one in the book? Um, my my favourite... Well, I, I definitely... My, my favourite is, is the bottle conjure, I think. I, I guess perhaps because of my... Um, the fact that it's called the bottle conjurer and I, and I'm a magician. So I had that, that had um, quite a sort of influence on me or, you know, attracted me. Uh, also uh, it was, it's one of the few actually that hadn't really been properly researched. Very little had been written on the, on the bottle conjurer hoax. And in fact, when I first pitched the idea, <laughs> I pitched doing an entire book on the bottle conjurer hoax. And uh, <laughs> uh, my agent came back and said he felt it was probably a little bit too niche for the marketplace, uh, which uh, I think was probably so, which is why I'd expanded quite rightly in, into 10 hoaxes. So th so that's the one. Yeah, that, that, that's my own favourite. In terms of the one that sort of totally surprised me, I, I I'm not sure if... I think in some ways, one which I, I didn't know anything about and, and which I really admired was, was Jonathan Swift's astrological hoax, whereby he was trying to get at, back at a man called John Partridge, who was basically pumping out this propaganda in almanacs. Uh, back in the 18th and earlier, almanacs were, were a very powerful form of propaganda and they were they, they what it was almost they were using them as sort of political manifestos to put their um, to put their point of view across uh, their political point of view across. And Jonathan Swift really hated John uh, John Partridge, but it was very it's very hard to get back at astrologers as it is today because they're they're very clever with their wording. You know, they never say something absolutely specific is going to happen. Um, they they put a sort of question mark about whether it might happen or it might not. So if it doesn't happen, you know, they can say, well, I just thought it might. Didn't uh, guarantee it. Yeah. Didn't guarantee it. And they have these, there's one comment where somebody put, uh, good news from France, although not all might be of that opinion, which <laughs> really does cut uh, both ways, obviously. Uh, and they always had the fallback as well. They say the stars incline, but they do not compel. Uh, which means, you know, the inclination of the stars, this is going to happen. But if it doesn't happen, you know, uh, and they could always fall back on God. You know, God in his infinite wisdom decided not to changed do what mind, the star, yeah. yeah, changed his mind. So it's very difficult to to get at these um, uh, these astrologers. And, and the genius of Jonathan Swift was that he made a prediction very specific to John Partridge saying, you will die 
on a certain date of a fever and to make such a specific uh, prognosis was completely unheard of and I think it completely threw John Partridge he didn't quite know how to respond to it uh, he actually sort of came back and said well I'm not dead uh, so your prognosis must be wrong. And Jonathan Swift came back and said, well, you're obviously dead because only a dead man could speak such nonsense. And in any way, anybody who, you know, <laughs> is making astrological predictions must also be dead. Uh, so it was I, and I think it um, it just it completely threw John Partridge, who had no sort of sense of humor and just didn't know how to respond to this. And I think it just sort of sent up the whole idea of astrology and, and almanacs. Uh, so I just really sort of admired it, it, its brilliance and simplicity and a way of, and I think that would work today. You know, I'm, I'm very suspicious about mediums who go around the country uh, uh, telling people that they've communicated with the dead. I mean, if you actually made a statement that such and such a medium is going to die on such a date, they can't get you for sort of libel or slander on that because you're just making a, a, a prediction. Mm. Um, and I think they would find it quite hard even today to know how to respond to that so yeah I, I think a sheer brilliance uh, I, I really admire Jonathan Swift's. Is this a kind of an area where you feel perhaps a degree of affinity it, 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 and I kind of emphasize here that I'm not talking about the insidious ones but where <laughs> Because you're a mu musician, right? And so it's all about... M magician. <laughs> I love that you got that. Oh, my. <laughs> For our listeners, Zach's brain just cannot differentiate the difference between a magician and a musician, and it's been hilarious. <laughs> we this found is unreal. <laughs> It, it, it's a, it's a, it is a cliche for us magicians. We are often introduced as um, as musicians for some reason. So so don't worry. Other I people. Think what he's trying to ask they? is, do you feel affinity with some of these hoaxes because you're a magician? <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Thank goodness somebody <laughs> I can. In it myself, I, I could feel the word musician coming out of my mouth. Thank goodness somebody can string a few words together. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure if I do, actually. Um, I, I rather sort of dislike hoaxes on the whole. Um, I, I do feel that a lot of them do have this sort of cruelty element about them. Um, and although people often sort of laughed afterwards, I think it's sort of a laughter of relief rather than necessarily a laughter of having enjoyed the hoax. I mean, there was a well-known programme of, you're far too young, both of you, to remember it, but uh, Jeremy Beadle used to do a sort of candid camera Beadle's box of tricks and Beadle's about, where he would do hoaxes on people where it looked like their car had been smashed up. Um, and then afterwards he revealed himself and say, look, here I am. Uh, Is he not everything. famous for popping up from behind things and people wanting to punch him? Well, yes, he was. He used to sort of disguise himself. I should say that Jeremy Beadle was a lovely man in real life. So mm. um, he, he, he's, he's died a few years ago now, but he was genuinely a lovely man. But um, yeah, you see, you had these pictures of these people sort of weeping and crying in horror. And then they would cut to them watching the incident in the studio and having a good laugh. And then afterwards they would laugh. But I did, I did feel it sort of laughter as say of relief rather than genuine you know, genuine laughter. So I, I, I do feel actually personally slightly uncomfortable with, with pranks or hoaxes. Nobody that have likes that. to look like a dick, do they? No. <laughs> I think some people take it better than others, but no one enjoys it. I mean, nobody wants to mistake musician for magician, do they? No, no. I mean, then you look like a colossal anus, don't you? <laughs> yes. 
brilliant. <laughs> so one final question from me. This doesn't involve the word magician. There you go. I can say it. Proof of it. Um, is the hoax something that you can envisage dying out with modern technology and kind of the ability to instantly fact check everything? Or do you think that actually the opposite is true? And because we have technology, it's easier to pull off more sophisticated hoaxes. I, it's an interesting one, that one. I, I think it would probably be hard to produce a hoax of the stature of, uh, you know, a woman giving birth to rabbits now. Um, I mean, that certainly at the time seemed to be the centre of conversation everywhere. And I think a large proportion of the population probably believed in it. But um, I think where hoaxes can become, to use your word from earlier, more sort of insidious is they, they can become much more sort of niche. And if you have a sort of a hoax, an internet hoax, if you like, that, are, that arrives, um, some people are going to believe it and some people are not going to believe it. But those people who do believe in a hoax or in a particular story or whatever, tend to congregate with other people who also believe in it. And they all look at, uh, and they only look at sort of facts that support uh, what they're thinking, the confirmation. In Roswell, New Mexico, for instance. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a famous sort of confirmation bias uh, that we all have about us. We all tend to you know, gravitate to uh, the areas we're interested in. That's why some of us read left-wing newspapers and some of us read right-wing newspapers or whatever. And I think that's true of, of hoaxes. And certainly a hoax can develop into a conspiracy theory as well, where, again, you have that. Uh... So I, I, I really, I, I think hoaxes are very, uh, are certainly very much possible now. I just think they're perhaps slightly more, more niche, maybe. Well, like Kate uh, I, Jameson gets accused of doctoring her photos to people. So the, the thing about so the accusation on Kate, who posts quite a lot of selfies, is that she moves the position of her eyeballs further apart. Is that right? No, she makes them bigger. That's she makes it. her eyes bigger. Yeah. What? <laughs> Just, well, yeah, that, so I, I'm not familiar with this. So not people, a hoax? Do, it, I'm not familiar with this one. So is this uh, yeah. is, she, is this what people think's happening? You mean? As yeah. So to I guess is... we're getting into the realms of people um, doctoring photos and things like that. Um, it's pre It's it's completely prevalent, isn't it? With people changing, she gets accused of it, and it's funny because she's not doing it. Um, but there are a lot of people, like for instance Beyonce, who draws a thigh gap on every photo and hoaxes the whole world into thinking she has a thigh gap, which she doesn't because she's a large woman who's nearly forty. <laughs> she's had three children, and it's okay that she doesn't have a thigh gap, but she chops one out anyway. Yeah, I, I don't think you would call that a hoax, though, would you? I mean, that's something just to um, for for herself and her, her body image, I would guess. So yeah, it, it's it's a hard area, but. I, I do think yes that that hoaxes can absolutely still still happen um, probably just as much as they that they ever did. Human nature doesn't change at the end of the day. Uh, the reasons why hoaxes happened in the 18th century are exactly the same reason as as they happen now. I mean, there are a large number of different reasons from you know believing in an authoritative figure to to the very sort of quite nice human nature that we do incline to believe what people tell us. Um, and society can only really function if that happens. I mean, if, if we lived in a society where we didn't believe what anybody ever said, 
then we couldn't get on with each other. So I think there's something inherent about humans that we do tend to believe what people say, which means that people can take advantage of that either in an amusing way or in a rather more unpleasant way. That brings me on to one last question from me, which is that I just kind of want to check. This whole thing isn't a hoax, is it? You know, all the people that you've written about, <laughs> it is it is legitimate because I, it did occur to me because you open this so brilliantly. This is why I love the introduction. You open this and you've got everybody believing a particular thing and then you turn it on its head. So, I mean, I, I ask this liberally in a tongue in cheek way, but it is all legitimate, right? Yes, it is all, all legitimate. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, some of the hoaxes I uh, cover in the book have, have been extensively written about by uh, by much greater academics than myself. Others uh, haven't really been touched upon. But yes, everything is checkable. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I do all the references. I don't actually have the references in the book because there were just too many to put in. But I have a website called thecenturyofdeception.com where all the, everything can be checked up on all the, all the references that I make in the book. So it is absolutely factually based. Uh, obviously, from time to time, I put my own opinion on a hoax. Uh, and I think part of the fun of it is maybe, you know, you putting your own opinion on it and saying whether you agree or disagree with, with what I say. Because some hoaxes, uh, as I say, we, we don't know necessarily what the motivation was. And in one case, um, the case of a, of a woman who supposedly was kidnapped and kept in a house for 28 days without food or water. We still don't know to this day whether it was in fact a hoax or in fact the woman was genuinely kidnapped and exploited. So uh, yeah, something even, even today we can discuss and argue about. Ian, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much for your patience where I've <laughs> called you a musician and not a magician. I nearly did it again. This is this is just awful. Let's wrap this up quickly. So your book, The Century of Deception, is available now. Folks, go and buy it. It's brilliant. And thank you so much. Come back at some point and talk to us about magic. And I will try and get my tongue to actually operate properly that time. I'd be delighted to do so. Thank you very much indeed. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.